Welcome to Long Shots. This is the story of two brothers from the Midwest with nothing to lose, who created a tech empire and all the valuable lessons we learned along the way. Hey everybody, a quick note before we begin. I just wanted to thank all of our listeners for making Long Shots a bit of a Long Shots success itself. There are some rumors swirling about that there might be a season two. Um, I can't confirm them, but those rumors do tend to be true. So keep all the emails coming. Uh, you can email longshots at thetribe.com. I value your feedback, and I do try to respond to all of the emails. This is episode seven. Really, Mark Zuckerberg? Really? September 12, 2006, Menlo Park, California. Mark Zuckerberg is standing alongside a young engineer named Rishi Sangvi. She was staring at her computer monitor, hoping the boss didn't notice that her right hand was trembling on her computer mouse. Rishi had written the code for a new feature that had just launched. They called it the news feed. Mark looked concerned. Rishi looked borderline panicked. She'd recently quit her job at Oracle because things moved too slow. At Oracle, you could write a good line of code, and it would take two to three years for that code to even make it into the real world. Facebook was the complete opposite. The company battle cry was move fast and break shit. And things were moving fast. It only took Rishi two weeks to write the code for the newsfeed. And with the click of a mouse at midnight, it went live to Facebook's 8 million users. And those users were furious. Something had broken. Zuckerberg had been growing dissatisfied with the early Facebook homepage. He thought it was too static. If you remember, it had your profile with a photo, and you could click on your friend's profile pages and browse around. You could manually click into their profiles to see what interests had changed, if they were still in a relationship, or who'd written on their wall. But Mark thought all that tiresome browsing left room for you to miss things and for people to miss you. Mark thought Facebook needed a facelift. He had a vision for a central updating feed of all your friends' activities. Instead of slugging through dozens of profiles a day to figure out what was going on, this new feature would aggregate your friends' activities and put it on your homepage like a newspaper. You know, a news feed. The day after it launched, Facebook user Ben Parr fired up his account. He noticed something alarming. He immediately saw that one of his friends was no longer in a relationship, and another one of his friends was talking trash about a bad date. The news feed had become like a megaphone, blasting private conversations, breakups, and inside jokes for everyone to see. Ben created an online group, Students Against Facebook Newsfeed. In an hour, over 10,000 people had joined the group. In just a week, the online protest group had swelled to 800,000 people. That's 10% of all Facebook users. And that was the page that Mark Zuckerberg and Rishi Sanvi were staring at on her computer. Mark, should we turn off the news feed? asked Rishi. I think we should keep it live, replied Mark. Because even though they're talking about how much they hate the newsfeed, they're spreading the word about how much they hate it on Facebook itself. And the messages are getting spread through the newsfeed. 
that's a bad thing. A bug, not a feature, right? Rishi argued. Not necessarily. Yesterday, we had one million people use Facebook groups. That's never happened before. Even people who claim to hate the newsfeed are spending twice as much time on the website as they did before. The data told Mark Zuckerberg something no one was thinking about. People secretly wanted to know everything their friends were doing online, and they wanted Mark Zuckerberg's newsfeed to feed it to them. Facebook had gone from humble campus directory to central nexus of your life. It exploded beyond universities. With newsfeed, any user would now have greater reach. People started sharing more, and the more people used it, the more relevant it became. Zuckerberg wanted to give users the ability to share more than just their personal details. Back then, user-generated content wasn't nearly as good as it is now. He thought it should be more compelling than memes about a grumpy cat and a crazy scientist with wild hair who blamed everything on aliens. So Mark would need to lean on professional publishers to infuse the feed with news and entertainment. The feature expanded. Facebook brought on brands, news, publications, celebrities, and comedy websites. Zuck wanted a news feed that not only informed, but also entertained. Suddenly, and seemingly overnight, the chive and our peers, like College Humor and Cracked, found ourselves being shared on this new news feed. Traffic increased exponentially as Facebook flooded publishers with referral traffic. It felt like everything we published on the chive was going viral on the social network. Everybody just thought they'd won the internet. But something wasn't right. A closer look revealed their traffic wasn't very sticky. Users tended not to hang around. While our direct traffic to the Chive averaged over 9 page views per session, Facebook users averaged 1.1 pages per session. It was like Facebook came into the website on the extended end of a bungee cord, briefly browsed your article, then immediately sucked back into the mothership. Nobody bothered to look at the data. Instead, publications were busy ramping up entire social divisions with dozens of employees, all having no idea they were only leasing Facebook's users. To them, Mark was a generous benefactor, lavishing traffic on us all. Meanwhile, Leo and I didn't trust Mark Zuckerberg as far as we could kick him. We chose not to invest in social the way others did, opting instead to keep our social division lean and mean while we focused on our owned and operated channels. Everybody thought we were missing the wave, that we were stuck in the dark ages and not evolving with the times. As we predicted, it wasn't long until Facebook started moving the goalposts around on the publishers. They knew that video content specifically kept people scrolling on the site like a bunch of drugged monkeys. So suddenly, the algorithm began prioritizing original videos over editorialized content. Social divisions pivoted, scrambling to offer the newsfeed overlord premium video sacrifices, lest the gods be displeased. And the video view counts piled up. There were two very big problems with this. First, 
Creating premium video content is extremely expensive. We ran a photo blog. Each post required about an hour of an editor's attention and a few sips of coffee. Conversely, a video back then took an entire team of creatives. Writers, videographers, a producer, actors, and editors. But the views were worth it. Right? That brings us to the second big problem. And it's something most of the listeners of this podcast never knew anything about. None of the views were real. Behind the scenes... Zuckerberg had set a plan in motion to defraud the entire digital publishing industry for his own personal gain. Here's how it worked. In 2015, Facebook began knowingly inflating its metrics on video views by up to a factor of 10. Suddenly, videos that were getting 100,000 views were being reflected as 1 million views. So imagine your college humor, and your videos are suddenly getting millions of views overnight. What would you do? Their reaction was the same as every other publisher. Holy smokes! We are getting our content in front of a whole new audience. This is going to be a huge win for us. We should make more content for Facebook. Publishers were tricked into creating video content for Facebook first, their own websites second. The ruse would lead to the destruction of nearly every comedy website in the U.S. We weren't so easily fooled. I mean, we suspected, at least we hoped, that other publishers were starting to realize that this might be a bait-and-switch. No one was saying anything about it. Everybody was hopelessly addicted to Facebook traffic. At the Chive, we were lucky. 90% of our visitors came directly from our app and our homepage. But for other publishers, most of them were almost 90% reliant on Facebook traffic. Still, if we spoke up and blew the whistle on these clowns, we might lose that 10% of our Facebook traffic. And that could cost us millions of dollars. To the extent of which we decided to blow the whistle on Facebook. Someone had to speak up. So I had our graphic designers illustrate Mark Zuckerberg in parody. We made him half Saddam Hussein, half Abraham Lincoln. Here's an excerpt from the story I wrote in 2016. The dictator isn't going to become your liberator. Facebook can lead other publishers by the nose into whatever horrific fate awaits them. The chive will go it alone. Effective immediately, we will discontinue publishing articles to Facebook. That means you can no longer find Chive Galleries on Facebook, you can still share links if you like, but they won't open in Facebook, and we'll probably get banned for speaking out against them anyway. The publishing world has precariously consolidated itself on the Facebook platform. You must find a way to break free before they decide you're no longer useful to them and daring to speak up against them did cost us millions of dollars. Two days later, we got shadow banned from Facebook. But I heard through the grapevine that Zuckerberg was furious, so it was worth it. And we were right. In 2017, Mark brought back a more personalized feed, making it more about the user and deprioritizing brands and publishers. For example, 
If you were a publisher and posted a link to an article on your company's Facebook page in 2014, it went to 100% of your page's followers. By late 2017, it was less than 1%. And seemingly overnight, the floors fell out from under the publishing world. College Humor went out of business, Cracked went under, and quite ironically, The Onion asked if we wanted to buy them. In 2018, a group of advertisers filed a lawsuit against Facebook. They claimed that the, quote, video measurement error was much more profound than Facebook ever let on. They alleged that Facebook knew about the error way back in 2015 and intentionally covered it up. Zuckerberg admitted responsibility and paid a fine of $35 million, the equivalent of a parking ticket for the social giant. For premeditating both the creation and destruction of billions of dollars of entertainment, Mark Zuckerberg paid a small fine. Sometimes I put myself in Mark's shoes. Knowing the algebra of deterrence didn't exist, would I have architected the same thing? No! Because I'm not a first ballot Hall of Fame piece of shit! Today, the newsfeed sits at the center of Meta's problems. Misinformation, toxicity, violent content. Don't think that Mark's pivot back to amplifying users' voices was anything but premeditated. Their algorithm detected that, given the upcoming election, it was no longer funny, cuddly videos that kept people on the platform longer. It was polarizing content. They figured out the more agitated you are, the longer you hang out. Now... Zuckerberg risks destroying so much more than a handful of comedy websites. His decisions are chipping away at the very foundations of our republic. Take it from someone who's seen it firsthand. Mark Zuckerberg sleeps just fine in his ivory tower. He doesn't give a shit. Last month, 42 states sued Meta for intentionally creating addictive features targeting children. We're back now with breaking news about one of the biggest social media companies. 42 states have filed a major lawsuit against the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. These lawsuits accuse Meta of knowingly damaging the mental health of American teens for profit. The lawsuit says Meta's Facebook and Instagram have profoundly altered the psychological and social realities of a generation of young Americans and have harnessed powerful and unprecedented technologies to entice, engage, and ultimately ensnare youth and teens. It's business as usual over at Facebook. We learn to never build your business on the back of another business. When you dance with the big machine, you're subject to their whim. Your business could disappear overnight with the click of a mouse. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. The chive escaped, battered and bruised. But we would live to fight another day. We'd started a beer line, KCCO Beer, and we wouldn't know it at the time, but it would lead to our most consequential success yet, the creation of a new platform, even bigger than the Chive. Meanwhile, Facebook was about to be blindsided by an up-and-coming app from China that very much valued those short-form, snappy videos. TikTok was coming for Mark Zuckerberg. 
Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating. Go to thechive.com forward slash long shots to subscribe to our newsletter and see photos of all the events I talked about in the podcast today. Long Shots is hosted, executive produced, and written by me, John Resig, for Chive Media Group. Audio editing and sound design by Stephen Wilson. Tune in next week for episode eight of Long Shots. Stephen, cue the holiday music. Thank you. If you haven't been to the Chivery yet, uh, it is the place to find all the funniest and most nostalgic t-shirts for the holiday season. We have hoodies, long sleeves, everything you need. Just go to the Chivery and use my personal discount code. This should be free. Merry Christmas, listeners. Merry Christmas, Stephen. <laughs>